You're listening to Green Dreamer, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. This is a primarily listener-powered show, and we are looking for more support to help us reach our Patreon goals so that we can continue this independent platform. So if you haven't yet, we'd love to have you join us on Patreon, starting at just a tip of $2, like a cup of tea, at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Also, we are now an affiliate partner of Wild Abundance's online gardening school, which I'm currently enrolled in and have appreciated so much. It's a really comprehensive video course that will give you all the skills and tools you need to be able to grow a food garden for yourself from the ground up. They offer step-by-step instructions for every month of the year based on the different varieties best suited for each season, and they also hold regular live Q&A sessions to provide personalized guidance. They do offer sliding scale tuition, so you can pay the level that you can, and they also have some scholarships available as well. So if you're interested in joining me in learning how to grow and tend a food garden this season, you can head to greendreamer.com slash gardening. This is an affiliate link and Green Dreamer makes a small commission for referred students. So if you sign up using our link to join the course, it's another way to support us at no extra cost. So again, it's greendreamer.com slash gardening to learn more. Many of those early maps that were depicting, say, New France or North America really excluded that indigenous perspective. And at the stroke of a pen or the lack thereof of a stroke of a pen, indigenous perspectives of space and place were ultimately eliminated from the map. It made it look like the landscape was empty. Meanwhile, there were uh, societies and governance processes and ways in which people connected to that landscape that were ultimately erased over time. Today, we welcome Steve DeRoy here on the podcast. Steve is from the Buffalo Clan, is Anishinaabe Soto, and a member of the Ebb and Flow First Nation from Manitoba. He's the co-founder, director, and past president of the Firelight Group, and he founded the annual Indigenous Mapping Workshop. Steve, we're so honored to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you've worked as an award-winning cartographer since 1998, I believe. Could you share a little bit about your background and what it was that led you to the field of cartography? If you want to know the honest truth, I kind of fell into cartography. It wasn't something that I had planned. In high school, I really loved art and I loved computers. And I found that cartography and GIS was a blend of those two things. My neighbor across the street, I, I grew up in Niagara, just close to the border of Buffalo, and my neighbor used to travel back and forth to work for the USGS. So when he uh, he was talking to my parents one day, he said, hey, you know, there's this emerging field of GIS and mapping that maybe your son might be interested in. And so I kind of explored it. I love the idea of blending art and science together. And, um, and so I applied to a couple of colleges and universities, and I, I attended a program at Fleming College in Southern Ontario. I didn't really quite know what I would do with mapping, and it wasn't until my third year that I met a First Nation uh, gentleman from Northern Ontario who was using mapping to better understand the impacts from logging and forestry in his, near his community. And he told me that they were using it to document community values and use it for planning, and I just thought, wow, that's that's what I want to be doing. So I've dedicated my career to send, surrounding myself with people that are 
much smarter than I am that are on the front lines of doing this work. And I really wanted to gain that knowledge and learn how to apply mapping and apply these technologies in ways that might benefit the interests of Indigenous communities. So, uh, so that's kind of how I got into it. And, uh, you know, one opportunity led to another. And then here I am today. Uh, and 23 years later, I'm, I'm still doing mapping. <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much for sharing that. So maps are, of course, something that most people get exposed to through our educational institutions, starting from when we're little. And I think few people really question the process behind map making and cartography and what it's actually influenced by, and therefore how it might shape our understandings of the world through specific lenses. And I wonder about the troubling presumption that maps are objective tools rather than ones that have been shaped by maybe power and the mappers' own human biases. So what should we know in regards to the history of map making and who traditionally had power and control over this process? It's a great question. And one of the things that we think about with mapping is, is they, they've been used for communication purposes. They've been used for navigation purpose. But like, as you said, the underlying notion of a map is an exertion of power. And the person holding the pen ultimately decides what gets put onto the map and what gets excluded from the map. And this is often what I talk about in some of my presentations when I'm speaking about the importance of mapping is, is that that many of those early maps that were depicting, say, New France or North America really excluded that Indigenous perspective. And at the stroke of a pen, or the lack thereof of a stroke of a pen, Indigenous perspectives of space and place were ultimately eliminated from the map. It made it look like the landscape was empty. Meanwhile, there were uh, societies and governance processes and ways in which people connected to that landscape that were ultimately erased over time. And so a lot of my work is, is focusing on bringing that knowledge and that training to communities so that they can be in the driver's seat to decide what gets put onto the map, how to tell those different stories of space and place, and really empower communities to be essentially become indigenous mappers. So that's, that's my vision is, is to build a global community of indigenous mappers. And one of the most powerful and dominant map making tools that or mapping tools that we have today is Google Maps, which really has built on the centuries of work in primarily Western cartography. But again, it's centuries of work that had skewed foundations in terms of who had power over deciding, well, first of all, the physical borders that we should see as the reality, and then also what makes it into the maps and how that is showcased. So I guess, how have these dominant Western forms of mapping impacted Indigenous communities, sovereignty, rights, and geographies around the globe by teaching a reality to people that may lead to erasure of Indigenous realities? Well, I think we have to think about it as that they're technologies and they're tools. And so I think when these tools come out, they're, they're used as an opportunity to better explore space and place. And I have a good close working relationship with folks at Google Earth Outreach. And the whole idea is, is how do we apply these tools in ways that maybe the developers of the tools don't really quite know how people might use them. So oftentimes it's more about exploring what those tools can do, what the limitations of those tools are, and how do we, how do we leverage them in ways that indigenous communities might be able to benefit from them. So, in my field of cartography, Google is a great tool, but there's many, many tools out there uh, that are available both 
for a paid version, but also as a free version. And so what we try to do is we're, we're software agnostic and we're saying there's a whole suite of tools that you might use to tell that story. And you decide which tool works for the process that you're trying to achieve. So, so there's some tools that are really great for mobile data collection. There's some for telling stories and there's some for managing it in cloud-based services. So this is a lot of the work that we're doing is, is trying to expose communities to say, okay, yes, there is an inherent bias that goes along with these and the, and the layers that are on that. So how do you augment that, those tools and put information that's relevant to you onto those base maps? So a lot of the work is, is training communities to apply those tools. And I always say, don't be afraid to break the tools. And that's how you actually really learn how you might be able to uh, move forward with with or without those tools. And so a lot of it comes down to understanding what your needs are, understanding what your end goal is, and then some tools will get you there faster and easier than others. And just out of curiosity, before you worked with Google to improve their mapping process through an Indigenous lens, were there anything that you were particularly concerned about in regards to what they had been leaving out or not centering within their tool that could have been harmful to Indigenous rights? Well, I've been in this field of cartography for a long time, uh, back when we used to use scribes and pen and ink, and we used to hand draw maps. And the technology has advanced so rapidly over the past 20 some odd years. It went from these hand-drawn maps to going into these studios to then process those maps to desktop computing, to mobile data collection and mapping, to cloud-based computing. And so the, the rapid pace of change of that technology, really, you have to ask those questions about who owns the data, where it's being stored, who has access to it what levels of permission are given to users, and all of those types of questions you need to really understand before you actually adopt these tools. And so one of the things that I often say is, is, okay, if you're looking at using these tools for internal confidential purposes, there might be some tools that might be better for that than if you're putting it onto the web that maybe those servers are distributed around the globe and now you don't have access or, or you don't have control over where that information is stored. So these questions about data ownership and, and thinking about who has access and possession is really, those are critical questions that you need to be asking prior to adopting any of these tools. And like I said, some tools are really great for giving you that confidentiality and storing your data on your own computer and others, if, if it's not as sensitive, you know, great, use these tools. I mean, some of them are really great for getting that information out to the world. So understanding those questions are really critical before adopting any of these tools. And we know today that there are over 5,000 Indigenous groups around the globe, and everyone, of course, has their own unique histories and cultures. But I wonder if through working with various Indigenous mappers from around the globe and also being very well-versed in Western cartography, you've been able to find any differences between the two approaches and how they might reflect their differing values, worldviews, and relationships to the land. Well, I think a lot of the, like, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of communities were excluded from that map making process. So a lot of the work that I'm trying to do is, is and, our, and our team at the Firelight Group is trying to build a global community of Indigenous mappers. And, and what that means is making sure that those tools are accessible, making sure people have access to training and data and understanding methods and how to apply those tools. 
And so what we what we started out doing here in Canada was really to start talking about the use of maps within these various contexts, such as planning, managing capital assets, you know, negotiating and documenting traditional knowledge and traditional land use activities. We've done a lot of work of, of, of that sort here in Canada. And, and what I wanted to do was to say, okay, well, what can we learn from other Indigenous groups around the globe? So we actually started a workshop in uh, and supported a workshop in Aotearoa in New Zealand with the Maori tribes and Maori communities. We also worked with the Australian Indigenous groups to put on a workshop in Australia. We've worked in South Africa. And what we've learned from those experiences is that there's different ways in which you might tell a story and different ways that you might apply those tools. And the great thing about that is, is that we go train people on what we think that might be might be helpful and useful. And then we hear these great stories of how rangers in Australia are actually using mobile data collection tools or how Maori communities are using drones to tell stories from the air. And then we were able to take that and bring that back to Canada and say, hey, have you ever thought of doing this? These are what these communities are doing in these other parts of the world. So it's it's building a global dialogue on, on applications of these tools that I think is really beneficial. And I think that's that's the really great outcome of, of the Indigenous Mapping Workshop is, is that we can understand and better understand what the realities are of Indigenous communities on a global basis and then be able to cater training that supports those realities. Bring your fire I think what's really interesting that stands out to me is that you're really using very advanced technologies and mapping to help support, in a lot of cases, the preservation of traditional knowledge and traditional lifeways and cultures and practices. So I wonder if you could speak more to this sort of, uh, maybe it's not really a contradiction, but just leveraging the tools of modern technology to support the preservation of biocultural knowledge and practices. Well, many times communities are are asked to bring their knowledge forward to inform processes, and and where our work at the Firelight Group is situated is a lot of our work is in the impact assessment realm. So we're dealing with large scale energy development, and that type of knowledge and information can help inform how those developments take place or not take place. And so we're very accustomed to working with communities to better understand that knowledge, better to understand what those land use practices are and and then that helps inform those developments to then you know reduce the impacts on areas that might be culturally sensitive but also be able to prioritize areas that might not necessarily be as culturally important or that there's a little bit more flexibility there but i think the reality is is that that information becomes critical to decision making purposes for communities to be to be active in that dialogue and active in that participation of that, that process. 
Uh, in many ways, in the past, many communities were left on the sidelines, and now communities are, are able to leverage that information that they're using and they're collecting to be able to then advance their interests forward. And it's not that communities are adverse to development, it's just saying, well, how do we how do we mitigate the impacts on on these values and and maximize the benefits of these developments in ways that don't compromise those values? So this is where that type of information, documenting it, using these types of types of tools to inform the process, where I think that, that many communities are able to uh, see the benefits of it. And and like I say from er earlier, our process is really about supporting communities to be in that driver's seat and training communities on how to do that type of research in ways that we think might be beneficial. And many communities are saying, well, you know, this works great and that tool works really great for us. And, and they're in much more in, the, in a position to be deciding, you know, what the potential outcomes are of this. And, and from our perspective, that's a, that's a win. If the communities are in the driver's seat and they're adopting these tools in ways that that benefit them, then how are we to say that that's a bad thing? Absolutely. And something else that I've been pondering is that we often think of maps as being fixed. And because of that, a lot of us forget about how political and contentious many borders still are today. And we also forget how arbitrary a lot of borders are too, such as the ones drawn around certain protected wildlife reserves, when in reality, those ecologies themselves don't really see those lines. Not to mention when we see geographies as being fixed, we start to live in this social construct rather than in reality being constantly aware of our living and ever transforming landscapes. So, for example, neglecting to be attuned to how forests, grasslands, deserts, lakes and rivers and coastlines are constantly you know, growing or shifting or shrinking. And when we're out of touch with these living geographies to notice the changes happening in real time, we then might not recognize or feel the pains or cries of the landscapes that are speaking out in their own language to be heard and cared for in better ways. So this was kind of a ramble, but what else would you add to all of this, especially in light of our ecological and climate crises that we're having to confront today? Well, lines on map matters. Lines on maps matter. And when I say that, it's we've seen that over time, these arbitrary borders and artificial lines on maps. And they do have major implications. And I'll give you some examples when we're, we're thinking about lines on maps. There's massive economic benefits that can be derived from the borders in which you live. So think about it in the United States where you have states, certain states might be in, you know, oil rich parts of the country and they really are able to leverage the activities that happen within those borders. So the same thing happens here in Canada. Uh, those provinces and territories are able to benefit from the natural resources that are derived from those areas. And so lines on maps matter. And, they, and you know, you think about property, for example, many people talk about property and this is uh, their property line. And, you know, like uh, it has value and it gets assessed each year. And so if you don't think lines on maps matter, then, you know, think about think about those kind of situations. But it's true, the natural world is constantly evolving and changing. You look at a riverbed and it continually changes depending on the flow of the river and the, you know, what's in the riverbed and that, that line work is constantly changing. But 
I think it's really important that we think about these places as cultural keystone places from an Indigenous perspective. So what makes those places so important? Why are they important to communities? What makes it important for the habitats and the animals that live in those places? How do we how do we work to protect those areas in ways that might be still accessible to communities without limiting people? Like it's nice to have these natural spaces, but to tell you the truth, many communities have have relied on the long-standing knowledge of those spaces and places to be able to manage those resources in those areas that don't deplete it. So I think what we're talking about are two different worldviews. Uh, one worldview that focuses on the how much benefits can we derive financially from that area and versus how much benefit can we derive from the natural economy that's situated in those places. And so I think we need, that's that's the struggle with the lines on maps is that there's two different worldviews that are colliding with those areas and those concepts. And so from working with communities and Indigenous communities, we have these long-standing relationships to these spaces and places that we're able to live in harmony with those places that don't don't exploit them to the point of well we can't use these anymore. So I think that's the the the, the difference here. So from my perspective, it's important to convey those understandings, those different worldviews, uh, and if some of that can be done on maps, that's exciting. But some of it is using other forms of storytelling to talk about those spaces and places. So it's uh, that's the exciting part of of my work. Yeah. And I guess that is kind of the challenge is the contradiction between the worldviews in that I wonder if a lot of our problems are ecological and social problems today are driven by those borders that have been put up, but that largely have been decided based on who's in power. Compared to when a lot of people are talking about decolonization, they're talking about taking down wall, walls and borders, even questioning the ideas of private property and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I think from my perspective, it's it's one way that you might think about it is decolonizing the map, and other ways is indigenizing the map, right? So how do we how do we tell that story from an indigenous perspective of those spaces and places? And so it, it's it's really an exciting opportunity to hear those different perspectives and to let the tools help tease those stories out and tell those stories. And like I say, some tools are really fantastic for telling stories. You know, there's story maps that's put out by Esri. You know, Google Earth has some great tools for storytelling. Mapbox has some really fantastic tools. So there's a number of tools out there that are really effective of telling that story. And how do we how do we ensure that those the communities that are trying to tell that story, that they have access to those those tools to be able to do so. And I think yeah. that's the that's one of the biggest barriers is many communities don't have access. And so how do we make sure that communities understand what what's available, what those limitations are, what the opportunities are with each of those tools? And then, like I say, letting communities be, to be able to decide what works best for them to be doing that storytelling. I would love to talk more about what you've been working on to help decolonize or indigenize cartography and then beyond that too with your work at Firelight. So what have you been working on in practice, like on the grounds? What, is, what does that look like on a day-to-day -day for you? And how has Firelight been supporting Native communities in Canada and beyond? 
Yeah, so a lot of my work is developing community processes to better understand that Indigenous perspective. So we work with Indigenous communities all across the country, and a lot of the work is engaging Indigenous community members to be active members of the research teams, to be documenting those community values. We we use maps as a as a way as a as almost like a a tool that we would we would then document values onto those maps. And so we go through process of interviewing community members about their life experiences on the land. So many people have experiences of hunting and fishing and trapping and camping and and we go through a process, a systematic process to document those values on maps. And what we do with that information, it helps inform, like I said, large-scale energy developments, but it also informs planning and long-term planning for communities to be able to prioritize particular areas throughout the, their territories to say, well, we, we think that certain areas should be conserved and protected and these other areas potentially could be developed and really giving communities the opportunity to be able to tell that story of a preferred future. So a lot of that initial research that we do feeds into those kind of broader decision-making processes that the community has been helping to decide what what they want to see in their territory and where that where those activities might take place. So our work is really about supporting communities to be in that driver's seat. And so day to day, we have projects all across the country uh, in the far north. And, uh, you know, since COVID has begun, we've actually had to do this type of work remotely. And so we're now engaging communities using uh, tools like we're using today, video conferencing tools and screen sharing and using maps to still record that information, but remotely. And it's been really exciting uh, to see communities adopting these virtual tools because uh, I think that, you know, just the situation that we were put in is how do we, how do we innovate and how do we be creative and how do we thrive in this type of situation to ensure that those communities are not getting steamrolled by developments that are still ongoing. I mean, it, just because we're all at home, it doesn't mean that those developments haven't stopped. We've actually seen an increase here in Canada. And so being able to apply these tools on a day-to-day basis is really important to ensure that that consultation and accommodation is being uh, upheld with Indigenous communities. So a lot of my work is developing processes around community engagement and, and, and use of these tools. And then a lot of our work then supports things like negotiations. How do we, how do communities then leverage this information to negotiate benefit agreements with those developers? So we have a whole negotiations team that does that. We have a team of people that work through the regulatory process and there's many submissions and letters and responses and critiques of documents that the, uh, you know, those proponents are putting out. And so we have a whole team of people that do that. And so we provide this kind of like wide range of services for Indigenous communities to be a part of those those processes. So that's my day job. The fun stuff is the Indigenous mapping work and training people and training communities on how to apply these tools. And then the other part of my work, I, I'm also a board member at a number of organizations, uh, West Coast Environmental Law, the Remote Sensing Society of Canada, the Canadian Urban Institute, the Institute for Integrative Conservation at William & Mary. And so there's a lot of work that I do at a, at a governance level with many other organizations that are working with Indigenous communities. 
And I think a lot of people understand the the mission to support indigenous rights, but everything you're working on is really the nitty gritty and oftentimes unglamorous technical work that needs to be done in order to support that on the ground. Like, for example, all these processes that need to be set up, the negotiations, navigating the legal systems and so forth. Um, so this is all really critical work that we're so grateful for your leadership for, and of course, we hope to support you and however however we can as well. And I wonder if there are any success stories that you'd like to share in regards to how these processes or indigenous mapping have supported communities you've worked with to really, really ensure that the development projects going on where they are, are being carried out in ways that they, they really consent to and they're okay with. Well, I, th- I think over the past decade, what we've seen is an increase in consultation activities. Uh, there's a, a thing called the duty to consult, where the government has to consult with Indigenous groups that might be impacted by certain developments or, you know, things that are happening on the land. And so what we've seen is uh, a huge increase in the number of consultation activities that occur with a number of different files. And so many communities often are drowning in in the kind of requests for engaging in those various processes. And so I think from from my perspective over the past decade, we've really looked at how can communities leverage this process, be active in that dialogue between those companies and their communities, and use the research that, that we do with communities. So not only are we documenting traditional knowledge, but we're also doing work with ecology, we're doing work on health and socioeconomic type research. And how do we take all these types of research products to inform how these developments take place? And so it's certainly an exciting time. And the things that I've seen are, I think the, the biggest out, positive outcome that might come out of this is that developers are coming into you know, the backyards of indigenous communities. And so how do we support not only the developers to be good, good neighbors, but how do we support them to better understand what those indigenous perspectives, those, those spaces and places are? Also, how do we how do we support with communities to be able to inform those governments that are making decisions about those developments that are coming to their into the into those parts of the territory? And so, what we've seen is an increase in the dialogue, an increase in collaboration. And many communities are also able to see the benefits of certain developments and be able to negotiate really good impact and benefit agreements and be able to be active in those developments and to be able to steer developments towards what communities might see as preferential in certain places of the territory and be active as part of that economy. And so um, that's the biggest outcome is, is that instead of communities sitting on the sidelines and seeing these things happening in their backyards, they're active players in that development. So it's, it's a very exciting time. And I think we're very grateful for the opportunities to be able to work with communities to be a part of that process. Thank you so much for sharing that. We are coming to a close for our main discussion, but I'd love for you to share whatever else that's on your mind that I didn't get to ask you about that you'd like to share, as well as, of course, your cost to action for our listeners in terms of how they can best support your work and uh, support the ongoing Indigenous mapping efforts. Yeah, I mean, we are very grateful for the work that we get to do. We recognize that we're being invited to many of these communities. So it's an honor for us to be able to support Indigenous uh, communities to be in the driver's seat and lead research that might affect their interests. 
to help them lead the, that that research. And so it's very exciting and, and our work is expanding. I, I mean, we do a lot of work across the country here in Canada, but like I say, our work is expanding into other parts of the globe and it's, it's a really exciting time for us. So yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity to share our story. What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Ooh, I have <laughs> to pull up my phone. I, I, I've just been listening to a, an audiobook more recently. It was recommended to me by one of my business partners, and it's called Start With Why called by an author named Simon Sinek. And it's a really great book for leaders that are looking to take action and and getting to the why why is why is the work that you're doing so important it's not about the how it's not about the when it's not about the where but why is it so important so that's that's been more profound for me lately what do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired well i try to keep a positive uh, outlook on life i try to wake up in the morning and and try to think about uh, how grateful i am and and being able to do the work that I do and, and that it's so diverse and different each day. And so I think just waking up, being grateful is, is how, how I get out of bed. So I try to think about one good thing about why I'm, why I'm grateful for the day. And that, that usually, that usually gets me going in the mornings. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I'm very hopeful uh, that Indigenous communities are are leveraging these types of tools, advancing their interests forward and active in in these processes and um, building economies. And so, a lot of my work is, is influencing that change. And so, and and I, I think the world is uh, better recognizing the importance of Indigenous perspectives of space and place. I'm hopeful for that. And, and I feel, like I said, I'm very grateful that I'm a part of that. Well, Green Dreamer, we're coming to a close, but to learn more about Steve's work and to stay updated, you can head to indigenousmaps.com and also firelight.ca. And you can also follow the Firelight group on Twitter at the Firelight GP, on Instagram at the firelight.group and on Facebook at the Firelight group. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. It was an honor to have you here. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I say keep your head up. Don't be afraid to fail. Try often. Keep uh, keep moving forward. And I say chimi guetch for the opportunity. 
This episode was brought to you by our community and listener patrons. To support this independent media platform, you can head to patreon.com slash green dreamer. The song featured in this episode is Come Over Tonight by Luna Beck. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production management intern is Spencer Carter. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. I'm so deeply grateful to have you here and to have your support. And I will catch you soon in the next episode.